Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Uh, friends, good morning. I've met a few new people this morning, so let me introduce myself. My name is Tyler. I have the pleasure and joy of serving as the associate pastor here at Journey Church. I hope you are well this morning, and I hope you have been encouraged by our sung worship and our reading of God's Word. We're going to transition now to looking at the book of Revelation, as Pastor Jim already prayed for and explained. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, you can open them up to Revelation chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, just so you know, the book of Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. Uh, it's right before in a lot of Bibles, all those maps they stick in there. So just flip to the maps and then turn a little bit back. And what we are doing, normally we, we preach through entire books of the Bible, but what we are doing over the next five weeks, having this week included and the week previous, is we are looking at just Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We're not going to go through the whole book of Revelation. So for those of you who heard that I was preaching out of Revelation, you started to wonder if we were going to talk about Apache helicopters or what numbers mean what. That's not where we're going. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3 provide helpful diagnostic tools for us as a church. Over the next five weeks, this week and the week previous, what we want to do is think about what it means, as Pastor Jim said last week, to be a healthy church. We don't want to rest on our laurels and expect that we know exactly what God wants every single time we gather together. We don't want to rest on our laurels and expect that we know how God wants to be worshipped. Rather, we want to again and again come back to his word to remind us of what he calls us to do. Part of the reason for that is drift is so easy. And so we want to ground ourselves and anchor ourselves in God's word. And Revelation 2 and 3, consisting of seven letters to seven churches provides us with a helpful diagnostic tool to ask ourselves questions about what it means to be a healthy church. So we get to look at somebody else's mail and, in effect, ask, what does this letter, what does this piece of mail have to say to us, Journey Church, about what it means to follow Christ faithfully? And we expect that there should be an answer to that question. After all, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So as I said, if you have your Bibles, we will start in Revelation 2, verse 8. And right before I start reading, I want to let you know this. Commentators say, and this is particularly interesting given what we will see is written to this church. Commentators say that this church, Smyrna, is the only one of the seven that had a continuous existence from the time of the writing of Revelation until today. So let's see why that's so interesting. Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slanderer of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is, going, is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt 
by the second death. Let's pray and we'll unpack this letter together. Father in heaven, as has been said so many times already this morning as various teams uh, and ministries groups have gathered together on behalf of the service we have lifted the service up to you given this morning to you and so lord we just now express gratitude gratefulness for your word in your word we are made aware that we were created perfect as image bearers but we are also made aware that we by nature and choice have fallen into sin And we are made aware as well of how you have taken the initiative to work through your Son and through your Spirit to call us back to yourself, to make a way for us back to yourself. And so, Lord, we ask for one more blessing this morning. Would you open our ears that we might hear what you have to say to us as we consider what you have said to the Church of Smyrna? We ask these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, let's consider this passage by starting. We're just going to start with, some, with four basic observations about this passage. Four things we see right at the surface level of this text. And the first one is that when you read this letter, you don't see any criticism of it. You don't see any criticism of the church in the letter. If we were to read all seven letters to all seven churches right back to back to back to back to back, what you would find is you would pick up on a rhythm of greeting, uh, of encouragement, of criticism, of warning, and then of conclusion. You would pick up this rhythm and this uh, way in which each of the letters is structured, but here, conspicuously, there is no criticism, there is no warning, it's totally absent. Now, we obviously don't believe that is because this church is a perfect church. In fact, that might be, uh, we might need to be reminded of the obvious in that sense from a pastor who lived long before us, uh, but Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon titled The Best Donation, said this about the church. If I had never joined a church till I found a perfect one, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would, it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. And let me add to that paragraph this one. Uh, it's slightly tangential to what we're doing this morning, but I always think there's something interesting in terms of a salve for us as we come to God's text, as we come and gather together. And so Spurgeon went on to say this, As I have already said, the church is faulty. But that is no excuse for your not joining it. If you are the Lord's, nor need you need your own faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution of perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners, saved by grace. Who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is a nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is a fold for Christ's sheep, the home of Christ's family. Here Spurgeon says that there is no such thing as a perfect church in this life. But he also says for those who are seeking Christ, for those who are earnest in their repentance and their desire for God, there is no need for their sin to keep them from fellowship with the believers. We can hear in this a call for sincere repentance 
an earnest desire. But back to Smyrna. It isn't because they're perfect. It isn't because there's nothing to criticize. It isn't because uh, there, is, um, there is nothing wrong with this church. Rather, it is their current situation. In verses 9 and 10, I know your tribulation, your poverty, the slander of those who say they are not, or those who say they are Jews. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Based off of the grammar of this text, we know that they have experienced, are experiencing, and will come to experience hardship. They have experienced tribulation in the past. They are experiencing right in the moment hardship. And there's explicit persecution laying in their future. So Jesus uses the tact of a wise shepherd and a good pastor. And decides to show them gentleness. For as Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. But this is also not to say that Jesus overlooks some aspect of unhealth because the church is about to go through something hard. He's not a softy in this. In fact, the reference to the church being rich tells us that they were, by and large, a healthy church. And as well, in a few weeks we will consider the church of Laodicea to whom Jesus says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So we know then that if Jesus had something he needed to tell them out of love and concern for them and for the holy name of God, he would have told them. But here, knowing their present situation and knowing that by and large they are a healthy church, he withholds what criticism he has in order to offer encouragement. Our second observation is this. There is no room in this letter and in this church for the prosperity gospel. Smyrna has suffered and will suffer more. They have been faithful, and they will strive to continue to be faithful, but their faithfulness does not reprieve them from the trials and concerns of this world. The only thing that they are promised is the crown of life, which they will receive upon enduring unto death. Now, this is not to say that God does not give us good gifts in this world, but rather it is to work hard to keep the gifts that he gives us rightly allocated to when he gives them. When, Jesus, when he arrived on the scene in Mark chapter 1, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had brought the kingdom with associated blessings and promises and good gifts from God, but he did not bring it all the way yet. This is one of the reasons why the Jewish scholars of his day had such a hard time conceptualizing that Jesus was in fact the Messiah because the kingdom did not break in in a, the way that they were expecting. It even threw the disciples for a loop such that in Acts 1 we see the disciples saying, will you now restore the kingdom of Is to Israel? They were expecting a more fulfilled, a more immediate kingdom. And Jesus said that the, those times are not for them to know. And in doing so, he commissioned them to faithfulness until the kingdom would arise in its fullness. Some churches, and let me be generous about motives here, some churches out of a desire to present people to Christ and present Christ to others, what they do is they take the promises of the future kingdom that Jesus has promised us but has not yet given us, and they drag them forward to today. 
And in doing so, they, they do two things wrong. First, there's a sort of bait and switch that you're promised something when you enter into the Christian life that you don't actually receive. And it makes it feel like, can I trust anything else that the church has told me? But the other thing that is a problem with it is even if somebody accepts that, even if somebody doesn't doubt and doesn't cast a skeptical eye over such promises, we think here at Journey Church that this is a poor methodology. You may have heard the term, what you win somebody with is what you win them to. Well, if you win somebody with promises of health, wealth, and earthly, this worldly, this era, right now, happiness, you have not won them fundamentally to Jesus Christ. All you have done is presented a picture of Jesus, which is just one more way for them to express and fulfill their desires rather than a king, a God, a creator to whom they need to submit. In the prosperity gospel, we find that there is no room for formation. There is no concept of the need to suffer. There is no question about whether or not we will need to endure. Rather, everything is put simply before us for our good pleasure. And guess what? When those things that we promise, when we promise them prosperity, when we promise health and wealth and happiness, when they do not come true because God did not promise them, they will walk away. And Jesus is not surprised by this. In fact, in Mark 4, he talks about the failure of discipleship from those who their pursuit of Christ is choked out by the cares and concerns of this world. Sociology departments across the country may make a lot of hay over the increase and then decrease of religious attendance, but Jesus will not be surprised by those who walk away because they were never actually following him. The logic of the prosperity gospel and the rationale that you can just add Jesus to your life as some sort of spiritual wellness project crashes into the iceberg of suffering in the letter of Smyrna. There is no self-improvement project that survives persecution. Third observation, in this text we are presented with a real spiritual enemy. This text refers both to the devil and to Satan. And this is the same being that the book of Revelation later tells us is the great dragon of Revelation or the serpent found in the garden in Genesis 3. And biblically faithful Christians believe in a very real spiritual enemy. A fallen angel who acts as a leader of rebellious spiritual forces at war with God. Now, some of you may think, well, that's, that's fairly obvious. I don't know why that warranted a point or an observation in the sermon. I do not think we live in a day where we can take the obvious for granted. I, too, believe that the straightforward reading of Scripture tells us this, but we happen to live in a day of theological drift. Every two years, a ministry called Ligonier, associated with the late R.C. Sproul, does a survey of the American positions on various theological questions. And when they did this survey in 2022, which you can find by googling State of Theology 2022, here's what they found in relationship to evangelicals 
response to the following statement. And I want you to hear every word of what I'm about to say. To the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, 38% of those who call themselves evangelicals strongly agreed. Strongly agreed that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but not God. 5% somewhat agreed. And 3% said they were not sure. Now, in my Journey Church pastoral contract, it says that I am never required to do math publicly. But I'm pretty certain if we summed those three numbers, it would be for each of us in here uncomfortably close to 50%. Friends, we are an evangelical church. When I tell people where I work, they get confused sometimes until I tell them first EV free of Tucson, and then they go, oh, I know exactly where that church is. We used to have evangelical in the actual name of the church. We are an evangelical church. We have the evangelical doctrine statement on our website. But if we can't figure out who Jesus is, we shouldn't take who Satan is, for granted. And by the way, just to be clear, this is what we at this church believe about Jesus. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Fully God, fully man. One person, two natures. Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, not spiritually, in physical flesh and blood, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. Amen indeed. That is what we here at this church believe about Jesus Christ. So let it not be said about us that somewhere between 38 and 46% of us evangelicals do not believe that Jesus is God, but a great teacher. So if we can't take that for granted, let's not take the devil for granted. He is called in this text the devil, meaning the slanderer, or Satan, meaning the adversary or the enemy. According to 1 Peter 5, 8, we are to be sober-minded, to be watchful for our adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He can devour us in several ways. He can deceive us, as it seems like he has done with the synagogue of Satan. He can distract us, as he attempts to do in Mark 4, references with the cares and concerns of the world, hanging dangly, shiny objects in front of us, trying to get us off of the path of discipleship. Or third, when those don't work, he will seek to destroy us, which is exactly what he has done and is attempting to do with the church in Smyrna. Fourth observation. And then we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about three crucial aspects of discipleship. But fourth observation, faithfulness requires vigilance. I referenced the synagogue of Satan there in verse 9. Think about this. Jesus is referring to the Jewish people in a synagogue, which is an institution established to worship the, gods of, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is an institution focused on covenant faithfulness to the God of Jesus Christ. It is an institution which existed to await the Messiah, and yet 
the Smyrna Christians are being told that it is about to throw them in jail. The people of the Messiah, persecuted by a wayward religious institution. Friends, it can be startlingly easy to lose our way. Here, this synagogue has done so with such dramatic flair and on such a scale that Jesus himself classifies it not as following the will of God, nor even the will of man, but actually in pursuit, and deadly so, of the will of Satan. This is one of the reasons why we want to spend some time this year focusing on what it means to be a healthy church. If it is so easy for a synagogue to go astray when they're looking the people of the Messiah in the face, how much easier for us? We might think we are faithful, but what we think matters little if it does not align with the will of God. So while we here at Journey Church do not believe that we can lose our salvation... We do believe Christians who go astray are called back to God's word by God's spirit. We believe that they repent and walk the path of faith again. But we know that we are prone to wander. And we know that the locust desires to consume many years. Our Father in heaven will be faithful to restore what the locust eats, but only vigilance and intentional discipleship will keep us on the path away from the locust to begin with. Only vigilance and intentional discipleship will keep us in step with our God and Father. So those are four basic observations that sit on the surface of this text that we see as we read through it. But here's what I want to do for the rest of our time together. I want to think about what this text says more broadly for us as we pursue the mission of being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us as we seek to be a healthy church corporately and living faithfully as Christians individually? Well, I think it says this. First, faithful disciples have martyrs' hearts. This should be obvious from the text, but faithful disciples must be prepared and preparing to die for the name of Jesus Christ. We must be faithful till the end. Including the greeting and the sign-off, this letter runs seven English sentences long, and there are eight references to suffering, death, trial, tribulation within it. And I will tell you this, for the church of Smyrna, it was highly relevant. They were facing economic hardship because the economy of their town revolved around locations and dates of idol worship. Smyrna is one of the largest places for the emperor worship of the city of Rome. And so the Smyrna Christians, out of refusing to bow the knee to a false idol or participate in a pagan religious festival, found themselves on the outside of the mainstream economy of the city of Smyrna. Given the economics of the day, this meant they were in constant danger of starvation. They knew what it was like to have the hungry growl in their stomachs because they did not go to work to make money or they did not have money to buy food that day because they withheld from a pagan act of worship. Furthermore, they faced the slander of a more prominent religious establishment. They faced the verbal undermining of the legitimacy of the Christian faith, which hindered both their evangelism and the acceptance culturally of their belief. And finally, we know that in the text, because of, his, because of history, we know that the reference to ten days is likely like Daniel 
not 10 literal days, but a defined period of time. Because years after this letter would be written, the pastor who received this letter, named Polycarp, who himself had been trained and commissioned to pastor the church at Smyrna by John, who was penning Jesus' words to him, that pastor would die publicly at the hands of the government officials by being burned with fire. John would have likely preferred to have written something more cheery and uplifting to his brother Polycarp, to his protege. But in all honesty, I would have to say that if what he wrote was not what he necessarily would have wanted to pen, I highly doubt that John found it surprising. After all, he himself is writing this in, in a persecuted exile on the island of Patmos. And furthermore, John would have been present when Jesus said the words that we had already heard read earlier in our service from Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep amidst wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to their courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have and have them put to death, and you will be hated for, uh, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And a little bit later in the passage, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and a servant to be like his master, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, which literally translates Lord of the Flies, flies being associated with death, so another name for Satan, the Lord of Death, if they have called him Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The Bible is full of texts and teachings and narratives on persecution and suffering. There is a clear biblical link between following Christ and laying down one's own life. In fact, Jesus himself tells us in Luke 9, 23 and 25, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, it will be saved. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, himself a pastor and martyr in 1940s Germany for standing against the Nazi Reich, said this, Whenever Christ calls, his call leads us to death. We need to hear this today, not because we face persecution of the sort or of the scale of Smyrna, but because we are so often unwilling to have martyrs' hearts within ourselves. This is clearly seen in the rise of what culturally has been called expressive individualism, a term coined by sociologist Robert Bella that says that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity that we are called to live that out or to express it rather than to conform to models imposed by others and especially institutions. Meaning, I am supposed to define and determine my own life and meaning. I define myself and I live in light of that definition unhindered by any external authority. Historian and theologian Carl Truman said, though 
we see this everywhere in culture, let us not think that it is not within the church. Because he writes, just as some choose to identify themselves by their sexual orientation, so the religious person chooses to be a Christian. Friends, we need to be careful of what we might call expressive Christianity. That we see Christianity, that we see following Jesus, accepting Jesus into our hearts as simply a factor that helps us achieve our already determined identity. If I have determined who I am for myself and then I simply add Jesus into that in order to accomplish it, there is no actual transformation. There is no actual formation. There is no actual service in the kingdom of God. But rather, Christianity becomes a way for me to meet and serve my own needs. Contrast this, though, with Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice by way of contrast, we are not defining ourselves, but sacrificing ourselves. We are not expressing ourselves, but presenting ourselves to God. We are not rejecting authority, but we are resisting and rejecting the worldly ways of thinking. We are not championing our will and desire, but rather we are seeking to discern the will and desire of God. We do not know or determine what is good for ourselves. Rather, we seek. We seek to know God. And as we do, he shows us what is good as our minds are renewed. Expressivist Christianity will have no place for a taking up of the cross. It will have no place for the instrument of execution, which is the symbol of our faith. It will have no place for dying to oneself that we might live for God and our neighbors. Faithful disciples must have martyrs' hearts. So how do we form them? How do we form martyrs' hearts? And I don't want to sneak this in. I don't want to get this under the cover. Rather, I want you to see this. Martyrs' hearts must be formed. They are not automatic. You do not get one simply by bowing and praying a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart. Something must be done regularly in us in order to shape, to craft, to mold our hearts. And so step one in conforming our hearts and our will to his is that we seek to access spiritual riches. Jesus says that in spite of the economic poverty of the church of Smyrna, they are rich. Well, how are they rich? How can they be rich when they have so little? Last year, we preached through the Sermon on the Mount. We found this verse in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the present tense here. The kingdom of heaven is theirs, not will be theirs, not might be theirs, not in some nebulous future is theirs. Right now, present tense, is theirs. One commentator said, this is what it means to be blessed, made happy by God. It is not as if Jesus is saying life in the kingdom with him is a life of profound joy, a joy that no person, no circumstance can take away. Why can the Smyrna Christians be rich? Because no persecution can take away what they have. No jail time can take away their joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessedness is not reserved for some nebulous future. It is for now. 
It is the mark of those who have really surrendered to the king and tasted his grace, although, of course, there is a future to rejoice in too. Notice what this commentator does. He said, to be blessed means to be made happy by God. This, that, makes the expressivist Christianity very, very happy. But he then counterbalances it with for those who have submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not our will, our desires that we say are done. Famously, C.S. Lewis said, how do you define, ask the question, how do you define those in hell? Well, there's only two kinds of people. There are those to whom they bow the knee to God and they say, Lord, your will be done. And there are those to whom God says, fine, your will be done. The latter is how C.S. Lewis understood those who would be in hell. Those who, maybe they came to God in some way, shape, or form, but never in a way that required them to surrender their own will and desires. Never in a way that required them to kneel before the true king of the universe rather than be king of their own hearts. This passage, this uh, verse in Matthew, connects for us both the riches of faith and the blessedness of following Jesus. One of the reasons why I think that's interesting is when I think about blessedness, my mind goes not first and foremost to Matthew 5.10, but actually to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Speaking about these riches or blessings, Paul goes on to say what we have access to in Christ Jesus. In verse 4, he says our election. In verse 5, he says our adoption. In verse 6, he says God's grace. In verse 7, the redemption and forgiveness of our sins. In verse 8, the understanding of God's will. And in verse 9, though we do not have access to it yet, our heavenly inheritance in God. We could add to this list things that Paul includes in other letters, like the fruit of the Spirit, the blessed character that is formed to be like Christ in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Or the peace that surpasses understanding in Philippians 4, 6. Such promises are found all throughout the scripture and they tell us what life is like in the kingdom of God. And they tell us what we have access to, though the kingdom has not come fully, it has come truly today. And inasmuch as Jesus has brought the kingdom, so too we can access its riches. So how do we access them? Through Jesus Christ, which is to say that we have access to them as we develop intimacy with Christ. Or to use the language of John writing in his gospel, as we abide in Christ. John 15, 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and so abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So we strive to know and to obey Christ, seeking him in his word, going to him in prayer. We have to keep at it. And many of us, we might sit there and we might think, well, I've tried so many times, but I do not experience the riches of the kingdom of God. I am tempted to say that this is because we are so often in our world too busy, too distracted, and too tired. I think we need to take more time for deep and close immersion in Scripture. I think we need to get ourselves a paper and ink Bible. We need to find a good pen that won't bleed through the tissue paper pages, or a good quality pencil, I suppose, if that's your thing. 
if you like, and if you're like me, you probably need some extra paper as well just to sit and spend time in God's word. When we do this, we are not seeking the perfect morning routine from the latest self-help book. We're not seeking to, to structure some sort of Instagram-worthy setup on our kitchen counter. We are seeking to meet the God of the universe, our Heavenly Father, in the words that he has written and prepared for us. Journey Church, we will only be a healthy church if we are steadfast in our pursuit of Christ in his word. Step two in pursuing a martyr's heart is that we must embrace the bigger story written by a bigger God. Think about this in the letter to the Smyrnans, who is Jesus? As Pastor Jim explained last week, Revelation chapter 1 gives you a bunch of names or descriptions of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 2 and 3, each of those names or descriptions is applied to a particular church in a particular circumstance. Meaning, Revelation 1, here's who Jesus is, comprehensively holy and for all people at all times. Revelation 2 and 3, here's what this church needs to hear about who Jesus is. Well, who is Jesus for the Smyrnans? The first and the last who died but came to life again. And what does he promise? Conquer, and the second death will not touch you. These two things only make sense within the broader concept of what philosophers obnoxiously and un unnecessarily academically call a meta-narrative. Meta, above overall transcending narrative story. A story that runs from the beginning of all that began until the end of all things, into eternity. The reason why we need to understand the meta-narrative, the big story, is because each individual story of every single one of you, myself included, and all people throughout history in every church, only makes sense when situated, located, found, and interpreted in the broader story. Don't believe me, look in your Old Testament and you'll find a small little book with just a four-letter name, Ruth. Who's Ruth? A nobody from nowhere, living at an inconsequential part of human history. If you take, I pretty much can guarantee you this, if you take any history class at any university in this country, you will not cover the era of time, the location that Ruth lived. Nobody is interested in it, but who is Ruth? Ruth is a person whose story is located, interpreted, and fulfilled not in herself, but in Jesus of Nazareth. Ruth would be the mother, grandmother of David. David, the son of David, would come Jesus. Ruth is rescued from poverty by a man named Boaz, referred to in church history as Boaz the Redeemer. You can already hear in the story of Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather the echoes of who he would be, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Ruth's story makes no sense until it is located, interpreted, and fulfilled in the coming of a great-grandson named Jesus of Nazareth. So too, friends, each one of us is a Ruth, needing to find, locate, 
and interpret our stories through Christ who fulfills each one of them. And we can only do this when we, like Ruth, admit that fundamentally our stories are not about us. We're not the main character. Admittedly, it seems that way because all the data I have about the universe comes from right here. Comes from my first person perspective. Comes through my eyes and my experience. But my story is not about me. My story sits within a broader story in which a creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all of human history is seeking to make himself known to me and through me to others. And when we see that and when we situate ourselves in the bigger story, we can understand and we can reinterpret that conquering does not mean at the end of my life I stand on top of the pile with all the toys I want and the things I want and all my desires fulfilled. But rather, my desires are fulfilled when I enter into the, king, the kingly throne room of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That in the midst of that, all things fall away. But in order to believe in that story, I must believe in a bigger God than our culture, even with its echoes and haunting ghosts of Christianity, will ever give me. I need to locate myself within a bigger story written by a bigger God. Jesus says that he was first and last, which means that he is the source from which all things that began did begin. And he is the place where all things will end. This is John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Revelation will connect first and last to the phrase alpha and omega, which means that he is the one who brings judgment, who weighs and measures each individual life in the palm of his hand. He is the one who can refresh the soul with living water or scorch it with unquenchable fire. Revelation 21, 6 and 22, 13. And yet he was killed. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one of us to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the chastisement for the iniquity of us all. Yet in spite of being killed for our sins, he is alive and will live forevermore because he is life itself. Jesus, speaking of himself in John 10, 17 and 18, said this, For this reason my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. And this charge I have received from my father. Journey Church, do we have the courage to worship a God who is life himself? Who makes us not the kings of our own lives, pursuing our own desires, but rather satisfies any desire we have as long as it is secondary and tertiary to him in his kingdom. Do we have the courage to be a healthy church that rather than seeking to put our desires, our thoughts, our beliefs about what is good at the top of the pile, submitting ourselves to him and asking him, will you show me the way? Friends, do we have the courage to admit that our stories are not about us? They're about a creator, redeemer, sustainer who makes sense of everything we experience, past, present, and future.
as long as we situate it within his broader story. Creation from nothing, crucifixion from sin, and a future coming glorious kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we lift up this morning to you, but not just this morning alone. We lift up our entire lives to you. Would you provide them with meaning? Would you provide them with significance as we seek to submit ourselves to you? As we seek to form martyrs' hearts within ourselves. But we know that it is not us who do this work, but it is you who will and work within us for your good pleasure. Father, would you be with us now as we respond to you in song and in prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.